This is an Odyssey original. This is KDX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. The solution to high home prices and mortgage rates might be smaller homes. We'll go in-depth into whether we'll soon see a lot of new homes that are tinier than what we are used to. Three strikes and Jim Jordan is out as House Speaker nominee. Also, free will. We all have the power to make our own decisions. Or do we? One scientist says we don't. He'll explain why he thinks that. We start with whether smaller homes are the future of real estate in Southern California and elsewhere. Lisa Simonson is a high-powered real estate broker at Douglas Elliman Real Estate. You may also have seen her in the TV show Kendra Sells Hollywood. Lisa, thanks for being with us. Hi, thank you for having me, and happy Friday. How is everybody? Uh, we're all fine. Hope all is well with you. Um, so smaller, uh, I guess it makes sense, uh, mortgage prices being what they are and home prices being right. what they are that homes apparently are getting new ones anyway, are getting smaller? Absolutely. We're looking at, uh, you know, what, what someone would pay before for a 2,000 square foot home. Now they're going to get 50, about 1,500 square feet just because of the interest rates rising. So size does matter right now, and you're definitely going to see a trend of smaller homes. You know, I visited uh, New York a few times and, you know, the, the jokes there about how small some of the apartments are. Apartments right. get smaller and smaller as things yeah. get more expensive. I also visited uh, overseas and in England, uh, there were many very nice homes, but they were on the smaller side than when I was used to here in sunny Southern California. So is that the trend? Is that That's the future that we're headed to? Absolutely. And that is the future we're heading to. And don't forget, it's not, it's, you know, size does matter, but it's also efficiency of the floor plan and the layout. So oftentimes you can have wasted space. So I think you're going to see, even though it's smaller, there's still going to be, uh, it's, you're, you're still going to have, you know, great layouts. And as I said, just more efficient uh, space and not seeing wasted space. So it's not, it's definitely not a negative. But if homes are getting smaller, if they continue to get smaller, at what point does it not make a difference whether you buy a home or an apartment? Well, that's a good question. But also, obviously, depending on where you live, uh, there are, you know, obviously in, you know, New York or Los Angeles or, you know, many, many cities, there are a lot of, you know, in the uh, centers of the cities, there's apartments, but a lot of areas are, there are homes, there aren't apartments. So again, I think it comes down to with interest rates going up that you're going to just see, it's it's not a negative that you're just going to see smaller, more efficient spaces, whether it be an apartment or a home. You know, I've seen this thing for a while. It was becoming uh, kind of a craze, these really tiny, tiny houses and uh, very right. nicely appointed. They look uh, yeah. great, very interesting layouts, but they were small. It's it basically yeah. uh, one of the rooms in, in my condo right now, but it's a whole house. Uh, are things going to get that small? Do we have to one day uh, say that human beings can't be over four feet in height because we've got to fit into the houses? Yeah, no, I think that's a bit of an exaggeration. And I think also, let's go back to some of the positives here. When you have slightly less space, you're going to be more organized. So I just personally, if I ask you, do you have like some clothes that maybe you should get rid of? Or are there parts of, you know, there are things that you could declutter? Because that's one of the things about down, you know, having less space, you actually maybe clean things out and become more organized. But I'm wondering if 
Homes get smaller uh, if we don't end up with what the Pentagon often likes to diplomatically call collateral damage. Uh, If you have fewer rooms, you have fewer need for as much furniture, you know what I mean? And, And across the board, a lot of people's livelihoods depend on it. You don't need as much paint or wallpaper. Uh, everything is reduced. That has to have a long-range, profound effect on the economy, I would think. Uh, not necessarily. Again, just because you have less space does not mean, you know, it, it, we're not talking about dramatically less space. Like you're talking about those very tiny sort of dollhouses. That's not what we're talking, you know, what I'm talking about when I'm looking at some of the numbers of a 2000 square foot house that now is 1500 square feet. That's not that dramatic. So it's a little bit over 20%. So I think, again, going back to if it's more efficient floor plan and you do some decluttering, you're not now living in something which is so much, you know, is dramatically smaller. All right, Lisa Simonson, thank you so much. Uh, High-powered real estate broker, Douglas Elman Real Estate. Right now, though, uh, more chaos in Congress. In fact, it seems to be Congress's second, maybe even first name. Not only was there a third failed vote to select Ohio Republican Jim Jordan as House Speaker, the Republicans then went and voted behind closed doors in a secret ballot to remove Jordan as the nominee altogether. Brian Darling is a Republican strategist, also with us is Amani Wells Anyoha, there we go, a Democratic strategist with Soul Strategies. Both of you, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Amani, let me, let me start with, with you. Uh, so we have a House of Representatives filled with people at taxpayer expense doing apparently nothing. Uh, we have a United States Senate filled with people at taxpayer's expense that essentially because the House can't do anything, can't do anything either, so they're doing nothing, um, which raises the interesting question, do we need them? (laughs) It's a great question and a very valid question, and I'm starting to question their worth or purpose altogether because it doesn't seem like any meaningful legislation is getting passed, and they're more focused on the theatrics and the circus of it all than actually doing anything for the American people. So at this point, I'm really just questioning what's the point of them altogether. They may or may not be relevant in our political structure anymore, and I'm searching to find the relevance as far as them passing anything or giving us any type of tangible evidence that they are worth our investment in our energy. Uh, Brian, a lot of Republicans have come out and said the only reason uh, that we are where we are is because of Democrats, because the Democrats did not uh, kind of save, uh, bail out Kevin McCarthy when he was first ousted. But uh, at the same time, back in 2021, Nancy Pelosi had kind of a, a contentious fight. She lost five Democratic votes. No Republicans voted to bail Nancy Pelosi out. Why are Republicans suddenly all agog that uh, how dare the Democrats put us in this situation, even though it was Matt Gates who got the ball moving here? Well, I think it's because all Democrats played along and they voted for the motion to vacate something that's never happened in the history of of the House of Representatives, and they knew that that would cause chaos. So, you know, when you have 100 percent of the Democrats voting for it, you know, it's. I think there's a valid argument to be made that they have played a role in this chaos. Our hands are definitely not clean when it comes to what's going on in the House right now. But to your prior question, I mean, it's there's some validity also to the idea that Congress not doing anything for the last two weeks is not hurting America at all. I mean, they need to do an appropriations bill next month. Um, they obviously need to deal with the Ukraine issue and the funding issue to Israel. But 
I, there's nothing going on with the republic that can't that is is not being done right now that has to be done it shows that this is a crisis but not a crisis of, of the magnitude that people are making it out to be well yes but that said it it, it is a crisis in the sense that we look foolish to the world i mean we are <laughs> we are supposed to be an example of democracy at work and it's not working. At least the Congress isn't working, and the Congress actually doesn't work that well with the executive who happens to be in office at any particular time, whether it was Donald Trump or now Joe Biden. So in that sense, I think we have a wider crisis, do we not? Maybe not the one specific to this time and place, but in a, in a more broad term, we have a crisis, don't you think? I don't. You don't. <laughs> I think it's. I think it's a mini crisis. I think it's something that a few months down the line we're going to look back and say, "Remember that history that happened when we didn't have a speaker? Now we have a speaker. Everything's fine." It's fascinating. I mean, it is fascinating to watch, but democracy isn't always pretty. And the House and the Senate, they they conduct their business in the wide open, unlike the executive branch, which is much more opaque. And so we see the ugliness. We see the fighting between Republicans and Democrats. Right now we're seeing it between Republicans and Republicans, but that's okay. I mean, that's the way that our system's set up. Let's have this fight. Let's get past it. Let's get a speaker and let's move yeah. on. Amani, I, I, it sounds like you're, you're anxious to get in here. <laughs> I, mean, to say do, that, yeah. I mean, do we want to see all this ugliness? I don't know. Maybe we don't. I don't think so. I think it's a manufactured crisis. And again, I don't believe that the intentions are really pure and their hearts are not for the American people when we're doing all of these theatrics. I think a lot of people in Congress these days love the, the attention and the celebrity that comes with being a congressperson. And I believe they set up these scenarios just so they can have a moment, so they can have a quote, so they can get some sort of attention um, from the public, from the media, just so they can further their own political ambitions. I don't see a lot of work being done specifically for the people of this country because we have so many domestic issues that have yet to be resolved or have yet to be even propositioned to be resolved in the last few years. So I think instead of trying to make a moment, instead of playing, you know, <laughs> hockey with who's going to be the speaker and just passing it back and forth, I feel like the Republicans should have been more um, more selective with their use of just ousting the speaker at will. I believe that it should have been something that was used only in an emergency. And I feel like it was used just for more theatrical means, not necessarily because it was necessary to finish off this current term that we're in. All right. Amani Wells Anyoha, Democratic strategist with Soul Strategies here. Also, we were speaking with Brian Darling, a Republican strategist. And so ahead, do you think you have free will? Well, that's a pretty heavy philosophical question that one scientist says you don't need to ask because he says, well, free will just doesn't exist. We'll talk to him about what he means by that exactly. Right now, though, if you're a fan of John Stewart's show, The Problem, on Apple, then enjoy it now because it is going away. I think they've only got uh, repeats running now. Uh, AI in China might be the major reasons why it's going away. Benjamin Mullen is the media reporter for the New York Times, who's written about this uh, whole situation. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. So it sounds like, and, and I don't know if we know for sure, but it sounds like 
Apple executives were a little concerned that John Stewart wanted to be able to cover things happening in China, things happening with artificial intelligence, and they were uncomfortable with that. So, as I understand it, John Stewart said, well, if that's the case, if I'm going to be hamstrung, I'm walking away from the show. Is that what happened, and is this a larger issue not just with John Stewart, who's not really a news show, though he covers news topics, but for the news media in general, owned by big companies. So what we know for sure is that John Stewart told his staff yesterday um, on a Zoom call that basically issues including China and AI, planned episodes or proposed episodes around China and AI, were among the factors that basically led to this uh, parting of the ways between Apple and John Stewart. Um, and so that that for sure is the case um, in terms of broader questions about how the news media covers both China and artificial intelligence. I think it depends on whether those businesses have large financial interests at stake. For example, Bloomberg News, which um, has a very big terminal business, they sell financial data terminals in China. They have run into issues with their coverage in the region. Um, Other companies, like, for example, the New York Times, have run into conflicts with the uh, Chinese government and have basically decided, in some cases, I think, to walk away and continue doing uh, coverage of of the country um, from places not in the continent. So I think it depends on what those companies have at stake in China. I was going to say, I mean, in in some ways, what apparently is happening with John Stewart uh, vis-a-vis China isn't surprising because that's been an issue with some major Hollywood studios for quite some time, right? I mean, you know, China's a huge market, uh, or was anyway, for American films, and there have long been stories about scripts that were altered, scenes that were taken out of, of popular movies because the perception was it wouldn't go over well in China. That's 100% right. I think um, an early example of this was um, the Scorsese film Kundun, um, which I think uh, ran afoul of of um, Chinese, uh, the, the CCP. Um, I think um, another example of that is um, the recent um, Disney film Mulan. I believe that some aspects of that film also, um, you know, caused some upset over there. And you're right. Because these studios have enormous international businesses, specifically in China, because they're such a huge consumer of movies, um, there's a real risk in running afoul of the government over there. What's next for Jon Stewart? Uh, I'm sure he's not hurting for money. Uh, Is there another place that he could shop his show to? But wouldn't he also run into a problem because most media is owned by a very few number of big companies, where could he go to tell his story if he really wants to tell these stories? It's such a good question. I mean, the seat at the Daily Show is open. <laughs> he could go back <laughs> could and, we see uh, him go back to the Daily Show? <laughs> well, uh, I mean, if he wanted to, um, they might be open to, to negotiating with him. I haven't heard that that, that is for sure going to happen um, or that that's even under discussion. Um, but it's a good question. I mean, the other side of this is that increasingly – there are platforms available to people who want to produce media independently, including companies like, you know, Substack, which is basically like a newsletter platform. Um, you can, you know, you know, you can put your stuff out on social media and medium generally. Um, but you're right. The, the consolidation of media, one, one, one problem that it's caused is that there are fewer and fewer people deciding what we hear, see and, and, um, and, and, and read.
is is China the only country that presents apparently you know problems in terms of censorship of uh, uh, motion pictures and perhaps television shows? Are there other countries that that major corporations are also perhaps overly or maybe not overly concerned about? It's a good question. I think specifically um, there are some companies that have um, censored or changed their content in some way to accommodate other countries, including um, there was a recent example, I think, in the last couple of years where um, Netflix either removed or took down some content in Saudi Arabia um, that I think was running afoul of, of the, um, the, the ruling kingdom over there. And um, I think what uh, Netflix co-CEO Ted Sarandos or Reed Hastings said was something to the effect of that, um, they, that Netflix isn't in the truth-to-power business. Um, it's in the money-making business. And so if you're not in the truth-to-power business and the government says either leave our market or take down this content, um, it's a pretty simple calculation for those companies. Benjamin Mullen is a media reporter for The New York Times, uh, writing about the situation with Jon Stewart. Uh, parting ways with Apple because uh, he didn't want to be hamstrung by them telling him you can't do shows on China or AI. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. President Biden addressed the country yesterday asking Congress to approve billions of dollars in funding to help Israel and Ukraine. Now, the president emphasized American support for the two countries in their war efforts. Patricia Krauss is a political and foreign policy expert and a professor at the University of New Haven. Patricia, thanks for being with us. Sure, thanks. I'm I'm reading some... um, uh, political analysts this morning who are saying that the speech that the president gave last night in prime time, only his second, uh, by the way, in prime time since he's been president, so emphasizing, I guess, in his view, the importance of it, might also be the most important speech they say in his presidency. If you agree, why would that be? Well, I mean, I suppose because, you know, we're now dealing with these two separate wars. Um, in the United States, you know, obviously, we're always been considered sort of the leaders of the free world. So our obligations and responsibilities in these two situations um, are significant. Um, you know, about being his most important speech in his presidency, he's got a long way to go in his presidency. So I'm not sure that, that that's necessarily the case. But I do think that, you know, people are confused about what our role should be. Um, you know, we've been in re- dealing with the Ukraine situation far longer. Um, the Israel situation, you know, is, is just more recent. So I think people want to know, you know, why should we be sending all this money overseas? Why do we need to be invested? Um, you know, helping them to understand that it, it's not simply about sort of what happens within the confines of the United States, but we're deeply impacted by you know, what goes on around the world and and the security of the United States is deeply tied to both of these countries. You know, there's a lot of people drawing comparisons uh, between what's happening now as we rush to kind of preserve democracies as as we see them in Ukraine and in Israel as it fights off uh, Hamas. Uh, They draw parallels with what happened back in the 50s and 60s uh, with, say, Korea and Vietnam. We were interested, we said, in preserving democracy and stopping the spread of communism. Uh, So we sent money, material, supplies, and eventually soldiers to uh, Vietnam and Korea. And what did that get us? Uh, There are some concerns that we are walking into the same type of situation here, are we? You know, I don't think so with these two situations. No, 
I think you'd be more likely to equate that with, say, you know, what happened in Iraq and what happened in Afghanistan and that we were there for so long and what did we really accomplish there? Um, you know, those are the questions that are often raised. I think in these two situations, you know, you're almost looking at where, you know, Putin is, he's not going to be satisfied with simply taking Ukraine. You know, so if he happens to be able to win in Ukraine, there are other countries that are going to follow. And, and that's the biggest thing is we can't have him expanding his view of government in that part of the world. So I think when you're talking about Ukraine, again, like I said, people don't understand that this could be a direct threat to the United States. But if he decides to just keep going, then, you know, there are allies that we have over there. You have the NATO countries. There's a lot of things that could eventually, you know, sort of be brought to our shores in that sense. So defeating him in terms of not allowing him to overtake Ukraine, I think, is extremely important. Um, and, you know, with Israel, obviously, it's a, it's a newer situation. But, you know, in this sense, again, it's you can't let terrorism take over. So there are obligations that we have to prevent these types of situations from spreading all right i think i think we're beginning to have some issues there with uh patricia's uh, uh connection which is saying these are important uh subjects uh charles yeah. and you know it was a when the president spoke yesterday there were a lot of reactions i saw some from people you would not expect to praise him for the speech but they were praising the speech i think uh brit hume comes to mind uh, the people who usually criticize him, some other Republican lawmakers, I, I believe, said that the speech was very good, very forceful. And uh, he uh, he he explained a way forward as uh, helping these. But, of course, it remains to be seen with Congress kind of at a standstill right now, whether any aid's going to make it to Israel and Ukraine in the near future. Right. Uh, by the way, a, a quick editorial note, uh, and we'll talk about this a little bit more next week. So next week is the last week for KNX In-Depth. Mm. Uh, we've been doing the show for almost nine years. Um, and uh, for those people who listen on a regular or semi-regular basis, we just thought we'd, we'd give you a heads up. Uh, and we'll have more to say about that uh, toward the end of next week. Have you ever wondered why you do the things you do? <laughs> That's a loaded question. Yeah, I know. Uh, have you stopped and thought about how much control you really have over your own life? Maybe not as much as you think you do. In fact, you might not have any at all. Stanford University neurobiologist Robert Sapolsky says you don't have any free will. He's writing about it in a new book called Determined, the Science of Life Without Free Will. Thanks so much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me on. It's a question that has uh, vexed uh, religious scholars uh, for some time, whether, you know, an all-powerful God has already decided everything that's going to happen. So any choice you make is actually an illusion. You're going to choose what God has already chosen. But for people who uh, do not look at this question, as I assume you don't, from a theological perspective, you're looking at this from some other perspective. It does feel like we choose what we want to choose. So are you saying that this uh, feeling of free will choice is an illusion. And if that's the illusion, what's the reality in your view? Uh, great. That's exactly what I'm saying, an illusion. Uh, first off, I would not go near theological arguments for this with a 10-foot pole, but 
avoiding that. Um, what we have is our everyday intuitive folk sense of when we're acting with agency. We decide we want to do something and we do it. And if one wanted to unpack that, what one would ask is, well, you intended to do that. Yes. Um, did you understand what the consequences were likely to be? Yeah. Did you know that you had alternatives available to you? Yes, as well. And for most people, and certainly for the legal system, it's at that point you say, case closed. Uh, the person intended to do this. They're culpable. They acted upon this. They are responsible. And my starting off point from a neuroscientist perspective is that doing that is like you're trying to review a movie and all you've seen is the last three minutes of it. Because what you got to really ask is, okay, so the person intended to do that. Where did that intent come from? And what that intent came from was the brain one second before and hormones that morning and environment over the previous year and childhood and fetal life and genes and culture and all of that. At then when you put those pieces together, all you have is a system that works <laughs> biologically and interaction with environment with zero room to shoehorn in what we think of as free will. So, I, I mean, in, in very simplistic terms, I suppose, I mean, so if I decide uh, between two different things I want for dinner, I'm not really making that choice by free will? No. And all you have to do is unpack it. You're sitting there right next to somebody else and you're both making the same choices and you pick one thing and the other decides to go hunting for squirrels or something because okay. that's what they'd much rather have. And immediately you could say, okay, why do you choose one thing and they chose another? And well, maybe your cultural background is such that hunting squirrels down for dinner is not really up there in the list. Maybe your genetic makeup is so that your taste receptors in your tongue bias you to liking this versus that. Maybe your childhood religious experiences have given you a whole bunch of taboo foods. Maybe your hormone levels that morning have made you crave a certain sugar level in your bloodstream, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when you unpack it and how you wound up choosing whatever you chose and they're off hunting right now, you see where the pieces came from and there's no steps in there where your brain made your decision without having to invoke uh, some sort of magic if you're saying there was actually free will going on. Gosh, I really want to dig into this a lot more because there's so many avenues to go down with this. But first, I want to look at the uh, practical application of this. If uh, what you say is true, that uh, our choices are predetermined by things we don't know about in our makeup, about uh, our environment, etc. Uh, what does that mean for someone who chooses to commit a crime? Well, or, or should it's... they be held responsible if they have not really made that choice? Okay, this is where people are going to have apoplexy. But if you really logically follow through what all of this science stuff is teaching us, it makes no sense whatsoever to ever blame someone for what they've done or punish them. And equally so, it makes no sense whatsoever to ever praise someone or reward someone. And that's really the only logical conclusion you can get to. Oh, my God, we're going to have people running around on the streets, running amok and all of that. That's the immediate concern. No, not in the slightest. 
we absolutely know how to protect society from dangerous individuals. And we could do it in a way that involves constraining them so that they're not dangerous anymore and not one inch more than that. And doing it in a way where there's absolutely no moralizing or sense of like retribution coming in. And as a great example, there's a type of person who is like totally dangerous to those around them. And we need to do something to protect people from them. And that's your kid who is sneezing a lot and you <laughs> keep them home from kindergarten tomorrow because they're going to get everyone sick. You intervene to protect society from your kids sneezing, but you don't yell at them that day and tell them they can't play with their toys because they did something wrong by sneezing. We have learned all kinds of ways in which we can protect society from damaging individuals without it being laden with moral judgment or a sense that the person chose to do that and should be held responsible. Is there is there a way for an individual to, in effect, hack their own predetermination uh, to to kind of realize what's going on, realize that they don't have free will and somehow change the outcome? If circumstances have brought them to that moment, so that they respond to what has happened in a particular way. Okay, so I'm going on with a song and dance here, and somebody may get off and say, oh my God, that was so interesting and convincing. I'm, I'm giving away all my possessions right now. I'm going to live my life as if there's no free will. And somebody else gets off and says, you know, bloviating jerk, whatever. And somebody else gets... And it's not going to be by chance who decides that, wow, I've been thinking this my whole life. And cool hearing somebody say that and somebody else is not by chance going to say oh my god this guy's head is up whatever and pay we come to every moment with the filters that every previous moment has given us could psychoanalysis work then oh christ no <laughs> no no <laughs> nah, not that I, i'm i'm more uh hormones and neurons and genes kind of person mm. and psychoanalysis has been profoundly unsuccessful which best case scenario doing nobody any good at all all right well uh thanks so much uh, my choice all things being equal sir would be to continue this conversation but i am compelled by forces greater than my own to end the show and that's called uh, the advertisers but thank you so much for being with us that is stanford university neurobiologist robert sapolsky who argues we do not have free will. He's got a new book out called Determined, the Science of Life Without Free Will. Well, Charles, that's it for uh, KNX and Death today. Yeah, I'm, I'm out of here, and that's not my own free right, will. Exactly. We're compelled to make these choices. Uh, we'll see you Monday at 1 p.m.